0: Welcome back to the Limehouse Podcast, this is me, William Portis, your host. Hope you are well, hope you've been doing okay in this incredibly complicated and upsetting time we're, we're going through. But yes, it is complicated. It is stark. But my God, our eyes are being opened. For some of us, I think our eyes are already fully open to this situation. Of course, I'm referring to um, George Floyd and how it's spread around the world in a pretty diverse way, I would say. Good and bad ways. Uh, Today we saw the, uh, was it the Edward Colston statue, torn down in Bristol. Wonderful. F- 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 wonderful thing to see. The, the, the fact that this country, this nation of ours has never really properly addressed the slave industry. It, it was, it, it's beyond me that we've never really properly attempted to make dialogue with that part of our past. And I hope we do. I really hope we do. I thought we were doing that around Windrush. I think any of you will remember I, I did an episode with uh, Grace Brown a, a little while ago. I reposted it the other day. Maybe a couple of you listened to it. I don't know. Uh, if, you, if you have, fantastic. If you haven't, maybe go back and listen to it. Uh, a wonderful uh, barrister. And we, we spoke in some pretty uh, detailed depth, I think. About about Windrush, and I thought things were changing and moving at that time. Obviously, I'm a naive person. I am a naive person, but there we go. So, yeah, I, I hope you, I hope you, I hope you have been able to find your own voice, way of expressing and supporting the Black community through this unreal time that uh, we are all going through but specifically those people. So this week's show is an interesting one, to say the, to say the least. I'm reaching back into, into my recent past to bring you a conversation with John Daly and Donna Freelove. John, who founded Soy Dog, the Soy Dog Foundation, with his wife, who's sadly no longer with us, uh, Jill, I, I went out there, everyone everyone listening to this, you, you're going to know that I've spent a lot of time over there. Well, not a lot. Some time. 10 weeks. I think about 10 or 12 weeks in total. Volunteering at the Soy Dog Foundation and truly finding a part of me that I did not know existed. I, I was Before I went out there, I was a bit of a mess. I was drifting, shall we say. It was unpleasant. And I got the call from fate. Uh, I don't know, the gods of... Muts, the gods of dogs, and I went out there and it was fantastic. So I had an immediate bond with the animals out there and some of the volunteers, some of the people that work there. I, I was lucky enough to spend quite a lot of time with with Jill, toing and froing from the sanctuary, just sharing some some moments with her. And um, I never I never met John, not really, not properly. Maybe maybe a few conversations here and there. And so the past few weeks, uh, having spoken with John about about his journey, it, it's been very eye-opening, and, and it's been very emotional. And I and I think the story that John and Donna talk about in this sh- in this week's episode is is what is very heavy. It's heavy, very heavy stuff. John has um, it has brought you. A it, it, real story here, guys. This is something that I, I don't think... I, I, yeah, I've spoken to some people with some pretty intense stories, but th- this is really something else. And we, we cover a lot of subjects. Obviously, we, we, we cover, cover their personal relationship, how John and Jill met, and we go through to them the kind of grassroots, which I really love, the grassroots s- setting up of the sanctuary. And the various people involved, and th- and then we even move through that into the um, terrible, unbelievable story uh, about Jill and how she she lost her legs, which is extraordinary, deeply upsetting, and then we we, we cover it all. We go through uh, even the tsunami that was. Uh, I mean, frankly, I wasn't there for the tsunami. Obviously, everyone heard about it, but we go into some detail about how John actually helped uh, helped out during that time. And it's, wow, it's heavy going, but you're going to get a lot from it. And if you are moved by it, and even if you aren't moved by it, and you just want to be a nice person, I suggest you go and check out their website, and that's soydog.org. So how are you spelling soy? I'll tell you. S O I, is yeah. It's like that. It's simple. S O I dog dot org. Soy dog. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful, unbelievable charity. And I, I would, I, I can't put into words what that place did for me, and continues to do for people. And why do I say people? Because an awful lot of fucking people that go out there are, in a way, not all of them, but some of them, a little bit lost. And they don't know it, they're going out there and then suddenly they find something within the animals themselves and they're able to help another being and it, imp- it improves themselves and of course it improves the life of the dogs. And what, 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 do we, what do we do, volunteers, when we're out there? We walk dogs basically. We go round um, this walking area in 36, 40 degree heat, humidity like you wouldn't believe and we're walking the dogs Looking after them, making sure they get exercise, and showing them affection, which is so important to them being reintroduced into an adoptee's life uh, and an adopter's life, rather. That doesn't really make sense, but I guess it's, it's hard for me to talk about it because it's, to me, it's very obvious, but conveying it to you is actually quite difficult. But yeah, and I. I I invited them on to the show because I thought here is something that changed my life. And I think you will get something from it, a lot from it. And and they're doing, they're struggling at the moment because it's, it's so volunteer focused and well, there's no volunteers, is there? Okay. And then for how long that is going to go on for, I do not know. But what I do know is that they need some help, financial help, you know, they they're, they're They're having to buy land, basically, to build new areas so the dogs can essentially live and exist. Otherwise, they're just dying on the streets, getting hit by cars or really abused. And there's the dog meat trade that's still going on, you know, so there's a whole there's a whole spectrum of requirements that obviously nearly always fundamentally boils down to money. So if you enjoy this show, please visit the website, soydog.org, and just think about a contribution. It never has to be massive, just just something, just something. But yeah, thanks for that, and I I really hope you enjoy it. But just to do a little bit more housekeeping, we do uh, obviously have previous uh, episodes, and I wonder wonder what you were thinking of the Ralph Brown one, because I love that. That was a great chat we had there, wasn't it? I, I did, I enjoyed myself thoroughly. I couldn't believe how lucky I was to be talking with that guy. And I, yeah, what did you get from it? I, I personally felt, um, having listened back to it, that uh, there's so much detail and so much nuance that I just wasn't picking up on when I was doing the interview at all because you're, you're I'm freaking out the whole time I'm worrying about how, how I'm coming across and, and and if the zoom connection is going to break but anyway, I, I hope you enjoyed it and uh, if you feel like sharing it with a buddy then that would be great you know you know how much that means to, to developing a show like this so if you can do that that'd be wonderful but um yeah and I just finished a, a conversation this morning with Paul Salapak now Salapeck but if if you don't know who that guy is dear god check out out of eden out of eden is an incredible venture so a man's walking thousands upon thousands of miles you know for, for like i think he's think he's going to be doing it over like the next 10 years or something and it's it's truly mind-blowing what he's doing so i've had a really in-depth chat with him he's got the backing of um, national geographic and other institutions and it's it's truly remarkable that my goodness me but that more on that another time but yeah for now that's pretty much it of course as always please do check in with my website where you can see my short film and comedy pilot and that's at somedaysadiamonds.co.uk That's named after a Tom Petty song, isn't it now? Yes, it is. And at the moment, I think we can all agree that some days are diamonds and some days are rocks. And it's fucking rocky at the moment. But if you want to cheer yourself up a bit, go and watch that short film on there. It's somedaysardiamonds.co.uk. Onwards and upwards, guys. And like I said, if you feel like donating at the end of this, soydog.org. It'd be a wonderful thing you could do at this particular moment in time for some doggies that are in need. Okay, look after yourselves. Take care. Bye-bye now. Those familiar with the soy dog story would be very aware of you know some of the specifics but where did you um and it's quite sweet where did you meet jill like when you were when you were younger
1: right well i met jill um at a pub i recently split up with um my second wife and was living i would got a cottage in the village not far from where this pub is and so i popped up to see alan um work was having a chat with him and in walked jill and came over first i'd never met her before i mean this is described in the book actually you probably if you've looked at it the actual book it's described Indeed, there because yeah. jill thought i was jill thought i was probably yeah. gay because yeah. the way i was sitting was as i tend to do cross with, with a with a sign
0: around your neck saying i'm gay.
2: Dangling.
1: yeah yeah sort of cigarette yeah. dangling and you know
2: Six
1: inches um, yeah, as well. Give it, give it an eye. Okay. <laughs> and uh as I put in a book, uh that also had lousy dress sense, you reckon. Um, which I dispute, but anyway. <coughs> she um and I'll say it was like love at first sight for me. I mean I saw him bang, it was boom, who's this? You know, almost like that. And we got talking, chatting, and um she was then off work again, and she loved dogs. She never had a dog in her life, but she did like dogs, and I had a dog. And I suggested, because I'd have a lot of days off as well, maybe day we could go off for a walk together, and off we went for a walk together, and hence started us walking.
0: So the dogs brought you together then, really? Yeah. You know, fast forward a bit, and you, you, you ended up going to um, Phuket, Thailand, for a for a holiday.
1: Well, we went to get married. That's the first time we yeah. went to Phuket. And was yeah.
0: that sort of like an because for, for me anyway, I, I will, I'm always really interested in the, the, the moment, sort of like the nebula kind of the creation of, of the, the love of, of the dogs and also your, I don't know, you, I, won't, I, won't, I don't know what to call it really, kind of like um, the need to help. When do you think like that for you and Jill started to?
1: It was Naga, if you like, who was the, actually started, soy dog in what happened to Naga that put it in our brain that we wanted to do something. And, you know, the fact that he was beaten to death by hotel guards and stuff is what prompted that. And that's out of that point that we started really, this is a couple of years in, we started going further afield, started then in local markets and seeing the dogs and started to see the situation. And with Naga as well, I looked up um, Eve, he uh, was the American girl who was married to the head chef at the Amanpuri Hotel, big luxury one, and she started off this organisation called Pause along with um, a friend of hers, Leone, in the south of the island, who later became Jill's best friend.
0: No, it's a really tragic story, and I think with with most things, like there's this kind of like a, a, a moment of, of of change, or I don't know, something that really gets in your heart, um, and. And, and changes your mindset to want to help and push forward. I, I Donna?
3: I think it's always been
2: there. But for years I was in and out of Thailand, not even knowing that Jill and John Daly existed. Um, it wasn't until the onset of Facebook or when I started using Facebook, which was about 2008, I think, that I started looking at Soy Dog Foundation and really did get quite obsessive about reading it, really, particularly the dog meat trade, because I... I absolutely know nothing about this industry. Yeah. I mean, of course, it's good and bad things about social media, but for me personally, thank heavens for Facebook, because I think I went about in my life in a, in a bit of a bubble, not knowing half of what went on in the world and the reality of some yeah. of the horrors. Of course, some people don't want to know about it, and I understand that, but I needed to know, because I couldn't be aware of this crime against animals and not, not do something to help. So jill and jill and i had this pen pal thing going on by email and this friendship blossomed and it was um sort of what i'd call that sister from another yeah, yeah. going on it was uh you know when you're you're not related but you just chance upon someone that you can talk to about anything and trust each other and 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 one of those where you can just sometimes read from each other's eyes what you're thinking and i loved it yeah. absolutely loved it i would worked in quite a cutthroat Environment for years in pharma, where what I'd consider to be real compassionate people, if you're far between, mm. you know, you're surrounded by a lot of BS. So to be graced with this unique character full of love and full of beans and as wise as any owl was quite a gift, yeah. a true gift. I and mean, that's not to say that we agreed on everything because yeah. we absolutely didn't, but we didn't fall out, we just disagreed. Then we moved on. Then she'd say, I told you so. Even with, even if she was yeah. wrong, which to be fair, not yeah. very often. Um, so yeah, heavens for Facebook. And the same with with, with a lot of um, things that we know about now that, that we would never yeah. have known about without social media. It's just opened up this whole world where you are aware of things and you can do something rather than nothing because you're sitting mm. in ignorance.
0: What amazes me in the book is just this this lovely what's painted really well is the, the lineal um emotional journey that John and you and Jill go on to get to the to the and, and also the people that you interact with to get to the first uh incarnation of not incarnation but you know of, um the Soy Dog Foundation like how you find how you find the site and what have you and also using the experience that you've gathered nuturing dogs or just you know trying to help dogs along the way to set up the soy dog foundation um because there is there's so much cool little intricate stuff in the book but that's that's gonna take a long time to describe if we could just jump
1: Soy Dog existed when we moved to Thailand. I mean Margot had started it in Bangkok in the neighborhood basically she came up with a name and registered in Holland but she was very low Small, you know, I mean, she was just doing dogs off her own bat, and she moved to Phuket the same yeah. time we did. So I met with her, helped her on that, and I've got other people to help as well. i had been looking at what people were doing, and the majority of people were just feeding dogs, so it was that was it. I mean, even Leone, pause what they were doing, they were allowed to take four dogs a month, volunteers to a vet to have them sterilized, but I mean, it was tiny numbers. But at that point, it was very much, yeah, you need to sort the root cause of the problem. And if you just feed stray dogs, then they go, you know, more appear, more appear, and more appear, the suffering increases. Very, you know, puppies die, you know, Thai people generally are not, when it comes to animals, they're not the villains they're portrayed to be. Yes, there's a lot of cruelty here, but the majority do care. And they will try and they can't afford to take a sick dog to the vet or whatever, Mm. but they will try and... A lot of them do actually go around and spend their whole day every day feeding stray dogs you know and that's that i think it's sort of making merit as well with buddha but it's from compassion so people do that so you're not going to stop it but with Margaret, it was very much a case at the beginning right sterilization and that's what we agreed to, i agreed with the total that is sorting the root problem because of all the, in effect if you sterilize all the dogs in an area they're not reproducing and that population will then die out but that's where we started. with. It was actually what we were doing with the initial clinics that we've described, and we just taught ourselves. I remember getting a piece of plastic pipe and a, a blow dart, and I would, um, a sack of rice, you know, and um, literally pressurize it, fill it with water, and practice. And I mean, we just taught ourselves how to do that. So that's what we did. So we basically learned on the job. We'd no experience prior to starting Soy Dog,
0: Donna. When did you get involved with Soy Dog, anyway? Around about
2: two thousand and nine, I think it was.
0: Okay, so this is quite a bit after they've moved to the site that they're they're at now, right?
3: Okay.
1: Cool. Uh, Yeah, we'd moved to the not long after we'd moved to that site. Yeah, for sure. When I always forget which year it is, I have to look it up. The dog trade, you see. I mean, all I knew about the I'd seen this. It was two thousand and seven. I knew nothing about it, Tyler. But it was 2007, I think, when I saw this newspaper article showing a truck with oh, well over a 1,000 dogs on it. Yeah, and I, this was in the Bangkok Post. The photograph was taken in Laos, and that's of these dogs from Thailand on the way to Vietnam. At the time, I wrote to every large animal welfare organization you can think of, including, uh, you know, Whisper, as it was then, uh, I4, Pe- Peter, all of them. And none of them were interested at all. I mean, they just said, oh, it's too politically sensitive, blah, blah, blah. And we don't have time to look at that now. We've got other priorities. Little did I know that Whisper had actually, that turn came out later, had spent fortune on doing a survey, which they then shelved and put under sort of top secret, not to be passed on to anybody, found that out much later. And we couldn't do anything at the time. This is when we were moving into um, this is when we're in the dog pound, for God's sake, still, and um, we're yeah. to raise money to do that up and then moved into the new shelter. It's always the back of my mind, a bit like having met Naga those years before, that wanted to do something about that when the time was right, and that, that occurred in 2011. Um, and that's in terms of soy dog. That's probably when that's probably when Donna would start to see stuff about. The dog meat trade, because that's when we started yeah. doing stuff about the yeah. dog trade, because that's when we started a big campaign to try and end it. And we're raising funds and employing undercover people, paying police and all the rest of it uh, for interceptions. And we had to build shelters, new shelters, pay for the existing, What we had all this you know, going on over. But in the meantime, yeah, Soy Dog support was growing. I mean, Leonard had come along was a volunteer there. So
0: Le- Leonard's your um, your media guy, right? And yeah,
1: he, the he was there, there. he came along. I mean, he had a marketing background, sales background, marketing background, and he I think had just sort of seen social media and thought he had what potential it had.
0: Because when you talk about dog, the dog meat trade earlier, what, what was it, Donna? What's your like recollection? Your first involvement with that that specific side of Thailand and that, that dark. The darkness there.
2: Um, my first involvement was emotional, I'm six and a half thousand miles away. And, and what yeah. can I do? And, and, and gleaning as much as I could from talking to Jill, because it was all such a revelation, like I said, I mean, my world, I felt at that time because everything was so shocking. I felt like my whole world had been in a bubble because I genuinely didn't know things like this happened until until social media and like John said yeah. there'd been something on on the television I'd not seen it um, I don't know whether unconsciously I'd decided not to watch things like that I don't know couldn't you couldn't get away from it because once you'd seen it you know it's this old adage about once you see something you can't unsee it and, and it becomes yeah. like, um, <clears throat> a strange obsession that you have to know more. You just have to know more because you, you need to know Christ, what can I do? You know, yeah. uh, I need to be involved with these people because I need to do something.
0: So when did your feet first touch down in that, what was the little Phuket airport, um, uh, with the intention of meeting, uh, Jill and John?
2: 2010, I think. I saw, yeah. uh, the first time I met Jill was at the shelter and I was staying in Hua Him.
0: What was your impression when you first saw the Soy Dog uh, set up?
2: Quite amazing, really. Quite amazing. Obviously, mean, it wasn't anything like it is now, obviously. But, uh, yeah. you know, it, it was just something unbelievable. And, and, and the fact that a couple from the UK had had created all this and we're doing this was just, um, I was just breathtaking. And then it always will be. It's, it's yeah.
3: you
2: know, and lots of people, including yourself, who've been out there to the shelter will always say that it's one of the, the biggest wake up calls in your life as to um, getting some sort of perspective in your life when you think, wow, this is, this is what can be done.
0: It's it's an astonishing feat. I know I know John and Jill. It's it slowly incremental steps to get to where it is now. Obviously, but I was definitely I I felt like a sense of not not necessarily like coming home, but a sense of what you touched on earlier, which is like um having my eyes opened for the first time, and then the significance that the dogs give you. You know that the um the sense of being attached to this earth is because you're helping something, someone is, is quite, it's it's pretty profound, isn't it? It's quite amazing. I suppose you, you would have, I mean, what what I was going to ask is what was the first dog at soy dog you can remember Donna that really like that you became attached to?
2: Um, Dominic.
0: I I was going to say, I bet it was Dominic. (laughs) 10
2: people from back then would say Dominic because yeah. Because he was just always there, like, um, you know, he was made of leather, just everything about him. And um, there was another dog called King Zeus, Zeus King, actually.
0: Been... Well, mate, these are two dogs that I, I first fell in love with as well, so that's good yeah. to have that in common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in A3, uh, Zeus, and yeah. uh, he was a profoundly amazing dog. Like, he, I think, actually, now that Rosie's got older, my dog now, I, I, I feel that... Um, He has, he had a lot of those attributes, those sort of calm. This is my run. I don't have to exert any kind of force. And if I do, you're going to know about it. And I never ever saw him like in, in about six or seven weeks, do any, do anything violent towards another dog. And he was was such an amazing energy of that animal, you know?
2: I just liked his attitude, the way that he could, um, he could run his, his, his area. You know,
1: Zeus King. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And uh funny enough, William, he came over to Scotland. He's passed away now.
1: <clears throat> yeah, I heard.
2: But he yeah. came he came to Scotland and so he had probably a year, I think. And bearing in mind he was he was probably thirteen at that time. But he had a year being totally loved and, and Lying on a bed and lying on a settee and and not having to worry. Same, yeah.
1: He
2: he didn't didn't have to worry about anything. He didn't have to. He didn't have to be in charge anymore. And um, and that's the perfect ending, isn't it? That's the perfect retirement for for um, for a scally like him. Because I saw him as a little bit of a gangster. You know, it's just. You, you know, you do this thing in your head. I, I do it with all the time. You know, my dogs have got voices, even in my head. Um, oh God, yeah. And uh, and you, I've got, I've always got a little backstory with the dog when I fall in love with it, which I don't tell anybody else about, but it's madness. But it, he was. Oh, that's so good sweet to me. And then, yeah. and like, like Dominic was the meter and greeter, and that was it. You know, that was his job. He was earning his keep and <laughs> and it's like i always seen him as being multilingual as well dominic because you know he could talk to anybody and i well, was <laughs> concierge bellboy meter and greeter you know Girl, i
0: can see why you love dogs so much donna you're i think you're quite a lot like me in that sense i definitely do that man like i think it's really important i think in life to do that especially with animals because i mean first of all you can't help but like they're dogs for god for god's sake you know you can't help but feel empathy sympathy and, and just an innate love for them the way they've evolved even just as a species it's kind of like they are meant to just go straight to your heart and um but then yeah you give them voices i've got voices for Rosie and Arlo and i i they're out they're out man they're out of my my head they're out on display around the house all the time i'm doing arlo's voice and rosie's voice it's <laughs> It's, it's great I love it but um I know when I first went to soy dog I, I noticed that um Jill didn't have legs I was like wow and it wasn't known back then really for me at my anyway that, that this this how that had come about um and I know it's such a it, it's the re- the only reason I highlighted it is because it's such a profound story and then also still went on to do such incredible things with with john john how how about how how about you just describe that i know it's really horrible or and ghastly but how did uh, jill come about with that terrible accident
1: well i mean it was um it was a mobile clinic at bandon really because we had I mean, it was three vets canadian vets over and also some nurses and they were good vets so we could do a lot of docs so Myself, Jill, Margot, we're all out catching, and uh, Jill, this American guy, sort of Rambo type he thought of himself as. He always came with a bandana around his head, guys, and all the rest of it, uh, and he came to darting dogs. He thought, you yeah, know, this is, I want to, you know, that sort of thing suited him. Jill wanted to go to this builder's yard because she would be, had her eye on this particular, quite big Heavy bitch for a while, you know, she went off there and she found the dog okay, no problem. In the builder's yard, there were like these big concrete um drain pack the cell, you know. And the dog was in one of the pile of them, the dog was in one of those. So she crept up behind, darted it in the bump. Now you think, oh that's it, the dog goes to sleep. No, they don't. It's been someone just hurt, you know, stuck in a needle in me and i off they go and next to this builder's yard is this water buffalo we call them water buffalo fields they're actually rice paddies that are not used anymore and um so they sunk sunken down and this was the rainy season and as heaviest part of the rainy season september end of september early october is when it's really tends to be really throwing it down and it was flooded so you know it was underwater the dog's plashing off through there, through this uh, water buffalo field. And Joe's at the side of the road, stood by the car. And Jill says, Joe can... You know, shouts at Joe as she tells it to me. Could you go get... And Joe's sort of, no way. He's got clean, white socks and trainers on. And there's no way he was wading into that. So Jill, she darted out to go wading in after it. She'd actually cracked her ribs in there a couple of days before. She'd had a fall again catching dogs and so she was in dis- not broken but it was a bit of discomfort so she went after that and she got to it just as the thing was going down and when it you know she, once it gone down it would have gone under the water and drowned so she's dragging it she managed to get it up dragged it back to the road to the car and um, gets it into the back of the truck and they take it straight round to the clinic. And Jill's covered in mud all over. I mean, it was was quite funny, but she took great pleasure in getting a a watch of it and just throwing it at Joe on his nice white T-shirt. I probably would have done the
0: exact same thing, John.
1: Yeah. So it was sort of seen almost as a joke. And I mean, Jill continued working that day, often carried on. And it's a couple of days later that she started to feel not well. And she put it down to a bit of flu or something now it was my birthday on the 4th of october my 55th birthday so she'd invited jill loves to cook she loves to cater so she was doing all that but she did it and then at the end she said i'm sorry i'm gonna have to go to bed so I said, what party are you gonna miss the she said, i feel terrible so she went to bed party happened she never came down and then next day when i went next day she when she woke up she said john you have to take me to the hospital i said i'm really in agony my legs and she's a very high pain like a lot of women a lot higher pain threshold than men do and she never complains about pain usually if she does and it's bad got her in the car got her in the hospital casualty got her on a trolley and literally watched her legs turn from a flesh color sort of a pale gray they whisked her off up to intensive care gave us sedated her and jill never remembered anything from then until oh several weeks later uh because she was in a coma then and then she was in that hospital for four days roughly the doctor there the main doctor told me he gave a very small chance of survival if she did survive he said she would lose or likely lose her legs arms and her legs so imagine that situation you do because you know surviving with arms and legs as well is, Bad, but I mean, she did stop her heart, stopped, and okay, they had to revive her. But it was after about two days, three days, I was asking about where's the doctor. And this one night, because I was sleeping there, obviously, and that friends coming around and bringing food around, and, um, saying, uh, yeah, he wasn't on. That's what I said, there's no, no doctor on site. But I mean, okay, they had the ICU nurses and they could get hold of somebody, but I mean, well, here she is on being you know, heart being stopped and she's on all these bloody machines and things by this time. And that was very good. And it was actually the head of, and he's, he's on the board of directors or was on of that hospital. And he said, John, it's a great provincial hospital, but you need to get her out of there. So you get on, to, you know, she needs to get to Singapore, ideally. And so if you can get onto insurance company, which I did, they agreed. Well, they asked if they suggested Rad in Bangkok. And literally, against the wishes of Phuket Hospital, we had a Medivac up and they sent a plane down. They have all these small mobile ICU units. So, everything she was on, including respirator, blood machine, you know, blood machine, because it was kidney machine, everything, you know, you imagine there are all these machines. They literally would strap them to themselves, these miniature ones, and then switch over from the hospital ones to them. And his nursing and so she's then had to wait for the okay from the police because it was checking down with rain and traffic was at a standstill on the main highway once we got the okay they then whipped us up to the airport into this plane which in turn was like a flying icu unit hospital bed in the middle and then all you know all these things that were clipped onto them were clipped back into place in the airplane and off we went, and Jill, Jill always complains later. It's the only time she's ever been in a private jet, and she never knew anything about it, nor could she have a glass of champagne. But got to Bromagrad, and um, so she was there, you know, for several, well, till December. And she was in a coma a few weeks. Again, they said chances of survival were not good, but she did survive. Cut a long story short. This doctor said to her, actually said to her, said, I don't know if you're religious or not. She isn't, she said, or oh, what you believe in, but I firmly believe that we all thought, for well, sure, you were going to die. Um, you know, you had very little chance of survival, but you did survive, and I'm convinced, say he was a Sikh, that God still has a purpose for you. And she turned up to him and said, yes, he does. And he actually said to her, it's the dogs, isn't it? Because he was already aware of the dogs, because hospital room was full of posters and cards and people had signed big cards and things all soy dog and everything there so you know that's a, a little side story um yeah i mean when she initially when she went into surgery she was back on a normal ward then and the doctor told her he hoped he might be able to save you have to take certainly uh you have to take this one leg off below the knee and uh best below the knee and the other he thought he might be able to save, but have to take part of the foot off but at least it would make it easier for her to walk and the first thing she said when she obviously she woke up of the leg and they had um so that was obviously emotional time very famous story then which i think i put in the book and donna knows very well where i am or less would say come on pull yourself together you'll be right and we'll get you walking and you get legs and blah 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 which went down as you can imagine, like a lead balloon, it's very, very much a men are from Mars, a women from Venus thing. All Jill wanted was sympathy then. You know, she was grieving in effect loss of her legs and she wanted sympathy mm-hmm. for me and all I'm being is my normal practical self looking for solutions to a problem. Um, why didn't it go down well? And she, <laughs> she said to you, Don, she said, I'll let him forget that and I'll uh, use it when I... Uh, yeah, she
2: Love. said she always kept it up her sleeve. It was a trump card to throw at you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Can you, can, did Donna, did, uh, Jill ever confide in you and how much, like, what it was really like to be a double amputee in Thailand in that heat?
2: That's not something that Jill would dwell on at all. I mean, it was obvious yeah. from spending time with her, you saw the pain that she was in You so, saw. <clears throat> um, particularly her stumps, when she took her prosthetics off, if you saw them, you, you wouldn't believe the effort to even walk on prosthetics. And It's something you don't think about until you know somebody that does it. Um, yeah. yeah. She is, I mean, it's interesting, William, earlier you said about Jill being disabled. I mean, she, wouldn't, she didn't consider herself disabled at all. Um, yeah. You know, she would argue that she's not disabled. And, and that's strength of character in somebody, isn't it? Um, yeah. But it's not something she dwelled on, um, because it was just a way of life for her. And it was um, mm. something she dealt with ext- in an extraordinary way, because I, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's, um, it takes a strong strength of character to um, mm. to overcome that and um, and focus on, on something much bigger than pain, because pain is so all-encompassing when you when you feel pain it's very very difficult to focus on anything else but she did it to the extreme um she focused on things that um that became more important to her than um, falling apart which which a lot of people would have done um so you know yeah. full of admiration full of admiration
1: but i remember them saying to us that, that- Learning to walk again, having lost both, is like not double. It's three times as hard as when you lose one. And I've seen people at the prosthetic company where she used to go with one leg. You know, guy walking quite easy. One, it didn't seem too bad at all. Difficult to tell. With two, it's it becomes three times as hard. And I remember them saying to her, majority of people in Thailand in your situation actually don't bother with legs they just stay in the wheelchair for the rest of their lives because it's it's too difficult uh, yeah. and about in to learn to walk and the pain involved in walking with le- artificial legs on in this climate. It's easier to be in a wheelchair, but I'm pretty sure you're not going to be one of those people, are you? And she said, damn bloody right, I'm not. And um, she um, always made a she, once she got those legs, I mean, she never stopped practicing practice until she could walk and get off those, stop using her. She had like sticks with three prongs on, you know, to, to start with Got yeah. photos of that, obviously, and then onto single sticks and then eventually nothing or then one and then none. And she was determined. She wanted that wheelchair up in, in the attic, you know, in the loft. And never wanted to use it again which she didn't the only time she ever used was when she had to go to bangkok and she never used her own but she would have to um she would borrow one there while they were messing around with her legs so she'd be in a wheelchair while they did it and it was going to take a day overnight she'd borrow one of theirs and might wheel her around shops and whatever and then the only other time was airports and she made a point of so if you can't take advantage of the situation, then what the, hell's the point of? Have any legs, and she would when she checked in, she'd always say yes, she needed assistance. And to save herself having to walk well, often long distances in the airport, but also you get first on the plane and first off. We used to be first off as well, but but what she found was, uh, if she wasn't first off, she, she'd tell don't worry about the wheelchair and she'd walk off because she didn't want to be cues, uh, she'd rather walk than have it to be in But it was a case of getting. Whist through immigration which you do do in your wheelchair they would take straight through she'd go use yeah. the wheelchair because it was basically why not and i could just stay with her so it got us through immigration quickly that was the purpose of that um but yeah well you know I, I know yeah that's <laughs> that's practical <laughs> um so she thought if you can't take parties now and again why not so that's what she used to the only time you'd ever see in a wheelchair until a very yeah. days, you know literally the last week of her life um yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, this is, it's, it's, I think that's what is so fascinating for people. I, when I, I, when I first came to Soy Dog, I couldn't believe it. I just, it was actually quite, I know this sounds crazy, but it's actually quite intimidating because I think she held herself, you know, she really had that presence. Right. But also to know that someone doesn't have any legs is walking around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like Douglas Bader or something without even a walking stick. And it's just command, you know, just, commanding everything it's just
2: extraordinary. You even going to sit down with you you know you offer jill a chair she'd, snatch, she'd snap your head off you know yeah. be, be at things and you'd think well i'm knackered i don't know how you're feeling don't you sit yeah. down for a bit absolutely not
0: <laughs> Well, yeah i mean I, I remember driving she used to drive me to the restaurant sometimes and um i was like how you you're driving how is how you do, you do it with your feet and everything i just couldn't it's just absolutely amazing you know no she had, I think that I was, was a big thing for her
1: it was a big thing in her life because she loved her independence
0: the thing for me is after all that horror that you both went through you then you can then get the, the tsunami which is yeah I, I what what the hell we'll have to flash past that because it's just there's again we've only got so much time and but that is extraordinary, and how you were involved in that. Like, I, you know, I mean, helping pull b- bodies out and, yeah, well, and line up down. dead bodies in Jill was body down
1: the hospital as well, in because she couldn't obviously do that. But she did go down to the hospital in Taquapa. Same hospital used in that. Actually, the actual hospital used in that film about tsunami with. Oh, um, uh, it
0: was quite a good. Y- Hugh y- McGregor. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That same hospital. And she was down there um, counselling. Basically, she's not counselling; she's talking to people. You know, people had lost people There were people who had lost legs in the hospital ward and stuff like that. So she didn't know what it was like to, um, you know, be in a tsunami and go through. But she knew what it was like to lose legs and whatever. So and she could comfort people, and she did that initially there, two three days, and then we went back to the dogs. But then Jill continued doing that in Phuket Hospital same hospital where she initially went the Bangkok. Um, so she would do, but you were doing,
0: care. you were helping as well. Cause what you described to me when we we've spoken previously would have given me, a, uh, I, I'm not, I don't say this flippantly, a breakdown. I, I don't think I could have handled it.
1: Well, in terms of the bodies, wrapping the bodies and whatever. yeah. I mean, obviously these bodies were literally stacked three or four high and in this open ground and we were literally just with no body bags. So had this rolls of plastic and muslin. So you'd like cut a piece of plastic out, muslin, and you carry body off, off the pile. And got off, you'd got rigor mortis and you'd have to snap legs down and things to actually get them in so you could wrap them. And then t- they'd tie them up and there'd be a girl from the local um, emergency. All Thai towns type have the local emergency people. You know, the a vol- volunteer organization. They're not professional. But they, they would cut off hair, put it into a bag, tie it on for later reference. And then we'd carry the body over to this new pile, which was under sort of a cover, tarpaulin, to wait for removal. And that's what we did. And you used to have, literally, yeah, skin coming off in your hands as you were moving. Oh, fuck. But the, st- the smell never got off you, but, you know, for a long yeah. time after. You still smell it you know it was still on you even smell of death basically it's a sweet sickly smell and um yeah that stays with you for quite a while so, be babies and things so yeah it was pretty horrible but i mean you just have to yeah. you know focus on what you're doing i think that's what people do i mean people who were you know i didn't find it might sound might sound callous or a horrible thing to say, but actually find it probably no harder than being somewhere like Nakon Panom, where you've got thousands of dogs and they're dying in droves around you, and you know, having to carry dead dogs out is just as, if not more, upsetting to me than doing that because it was just a job you had to do. These people were dead, and it was just something that had to be done. I don't think that sounds hard at all. They're
2: all souls, you know.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: Yeah exactly. Yeah. I was going to say I was going to say exactly the same thing. You know that that you've invested your soul in them like and vice versa and you, you it's it's tragic. that's absolutely tragic. But that's such a profound pitch you you paint on. I don't, I I mean I know you you are way way more pragmatic than me and by the sounds of it most people in terms of just being able to get on with that. So that is that's truly a heroic effort, my friend. I presume, finally, you know, you're able to carry on with, with, with Soy Dog and what
1: have you. Oh, this only um, went on wait. for about three days, and then they had these professional teams arriving. They, kept, they were coming from yeah. all over. In fact, I got a call from the local uh, Alistair, the editor of the local paper. He called me up and said, what, you know, what do you need up there? What's needed? And I said, what's needed is body backs. Um, because mm. it would speed everything up so much, you know, and it's just, I um, having to cut it up guitar, Paul, you know, plastic and yeah. and they only they got, they came in from eventually they came, started coming in from Israel, I think firstly, and then with these professional teams coming in from all over the place. Taiwan were the first ones there came in. And again, with body bags and professional teams, plus the Thai army were down there as well. Then, you know, they were coming down and getting more involved. So yeah. we were able to leave it to them. It was just at that moment in time, it was just chaos. Uh, nothing, it was just a case of trucks were going out all around and picking up bodies, bringing them back to this area and literally just tipping them out, you know, onto a pile, you know, and that's, it was like, sounds awful, but that's what it was like. Uh,
0: that is horrific.
1: I know the Uh, the tragic scenes where we went to this hotel as well. It was a huge hotel. It had only just been completed Had the biggest swimming pool in Asia. There was this russian woman walking around this was and they were pumping water out from underneath the rooms because there were bodies under there to try and get them out and there was this russian, russian lady and she was just searching for her grandchildren her son no sign of them and um the room where they were in you know I mean, that was just you could see people in the rooms they were just destroyed i mean because everywhere you looked it was like christmas wrapping paper and whatever because it was day after christmas you know and it was like yeah what should have been a lovely family occasion just gone and these people in that place i mean, most of them were killed in that place because it was literally right on the se- Uh Yeah. so yeah horrible place scenes but i no. don't really look back on it some people say oh it's you know it never leaves stays with you for life i mean it does like, so it does come back to you at times if people ask you that's an army yeah but it's not something i see often and yet still see visions see scenes i've seen in terms of the dog meat trade whether in reality now or in um even on film you know things i've seen which they yeah. touch back more than that it's funny strange but there you go so,
0: so donald when did you like to move on when did you first come and realize i'm going to work for soy dog and in what capacity was it were you like like me more like a volunteer for a little while and then slowly moved into helping just evolved
2: like with everybody else from being a volunteer and then just getting more and more involved i suppose um i've been more fortunate
1: and donna is a volunteer now always has been she's never been an employee
2: yeah
0: yeah
3: yeah
2: um so it just evolved from there and um I was fortunately in that I was able to retire earlier than most. And, um, so I could put more into
0: it in, in terms, cause I know a lot of people want to know about soy dogs involvement within the dog meat trade. Cause that's what got me, I got, I saw a video, um, is it, what's it called with the, uh, Ricky Gervais and Dawn? Yeah, and, uh, I didn't know IDK would call that. I didn't know. I didn't know. Yeah. And, um, I mean, the, the involvement if you could speak a little bit about soy dogs involvement in the soy, the, the, in the uh, meat trade of the mm-hmm. dogs.
1: Maya was very clear I, I was determined, this is almost a personal thing. After seeing that photo that would end end the dog, this dog meat trade in Thailand, from Thailand to Vietnam, that was the prime objective, initial objective. And once we are in a position whereby yeah, we'd now, we'd moved into the new shelter. Everything was going well. Decided this is time now to do something about it. And it coincided with the then governor of Nakhon Phanom province actually carrying out an interception. Because I remember him saying in the press, he was fed up with these smugglers just doing whatever they wanted in he So he did an interception as often, and their dogs were taken to Nakhon Phanom livestock center. And that, well, that was sort of the spark as well to say, right, we need to turn this into a movement. And it covered various things. I mean, I got involved with Thai activists in Bangkok and protests were organized in Bangkok. Photos of those where you'll see mass protests outside parliament with um, kids literally dressed, you know, made up as dogs and cats in cages, you know, made up of cages and things. It was all this sort of protests were going on. We really generated interest in Thailand as well, because throughout years, 90% of the Thai people are against the dog meat trade, most of them are also like, that's why we called it the shadow trade in a film we made later. People didn't even know it existed or went on. It was, you know, they knew some of the hill tribe people ate dog meat up in the far north near Chiang Rai and whatever. They do and still do some of them. Um, but was this industry in the northeast in Isan where people were uh, literally, it was so organized. I mean, you had all these people going around in trucks buying dogs from, I say buying, they were known as bucket dogs that exchanged plastic buckets from wanted dogs in poor villages. Because bear in mind, there's no birth control. They're always dogs reproducing. It was a way of, even the government in, in that area, the governor's in, Turned a blind eye because it was controlling the stray dogs in that area. So you had all this going on, and some were stolen as well from temples, you know, whatever, all this was happening. But the reason it happened up there was because of Tara is the centre of it. It's basically a Vietnamese town in Thailand. It has a Roman Catholic mm. cathedral, a nunnery, and all this. And that was the centre of it. All the borders with Lao. Mekong River is all around that area. You know, it's stuck all from the north to south. So that's why it became the center of a trade with Vietnam. And there's still a trade with Vietnam today and life's, you know, wild animals. The way we then got involved was we got people we knew from Bangkok and elsewhere, who had connections, who were keen on stopping the dog trade. We were, but they hadn't had the ability to do it or the finance to do it, they knew what needed doing. And so we financed them and they recruited local villagers as informants on the basis of they would get paid rewards, as would the police and the Royal Thai Navy, mainly the Royal Thai Navy, Mekong River. It's nowhere near the sea, but they had the Mekong River as part of their border control. So the border control people were also offered rewards, paid for by Soy Dog, or paid for by us. And we would also, when the dogs were intercepted, generally they went to Penon first and then moved to a different one. And we would supply again all the food, all the vaccines, um, drugs, etc. So we were financing, making, if you like, the operation possible and financing it. The corruption up there is rife and had to be done very, very quietly because most of the police and law enforcement <coughs> were in the, on the payroll of the smugglers and they were getting paid. We could compete with what they were getting paid. But they were honest, the, the honest ones are about who hated this. They were the ones we worked with. And we did give them rewards, but I mean, they weren't saying we'll only do it if you pay us. They were still doing it, but we did give them rewards. That was agreed upon with our sort of main agents. Also then what happened was in reality, it was becoming unprofitable because it's very difficult to smuggle. You have to smuggle large numbers of dogs to, to make money, you know, and they were transporting in long-tailed boats. They literally take them to the river in trucks, local trucks, stacked up with dogs, at least a thousand usually at a time in a little convoy. And they would then be loaded onto long-tailed boats straight across the river. Once they're in Laos, they're home safe, the Laos. And then they would take them uh, by truck again on a long journey, usually to um, what's the place it's like a wholesale village in northern Vietnam where there would be uh, food pumped, liquid rice force fed them, pumped into them to increase the weight and all this and then sold then on to generally into Hanoi and elsewhere. That's what happened and at the same time so basically we were wearing them down and we had one occasion that nearly 2,000 dogs were intercepted at a holding in the jungle near um we also had informers there where they were holding the dogs and we were able to get the dogs well i mean these people had already spent money on buying these dogs you know they paid their all the gatherers who went out from the villages they paid the middlemen and these people the final you know some dogs the poorer dogs stayed in thailand they were used for local consumption and skins There was tanneries up there as well and that was it so we were getting the those raided and this you know we're doing all sorts of that time so it gradually started to stop but also at that time we were pushing to have laws into in you know brought in to make it illegal the actual smuggling was illegal based on health laws so that's the anthrax act the rabies act what we wanted in thailand was it to be illegal to kill dogs for you know for food for Mm. skins or whatever and that's it. so happened that in 2000, early 2014, is when the military coup happened. And the generals took over. And there was an animal welfare law making very slow passage going through parliament. But they came in and decided they wanted to push some popular bills through. So it'd be good for their image. So that's what they did. And we we actually, I went to meetings with secretary to the main man and all the rest of it. Very nice English educated colonel he was at the time. And... Other generals uh, in the who were working t- took over all the ministries, everything. So we got them to back pushing this bill through Parliament. So that's how we got the law brought in, which makes it in effect illegal now.
0: What do you? I mean, that's such an accomplishment. It's it's almost a little bit overwhelming for me, Donna. What what are you thinking? Like, because I know you you would have known about this for a lot. Obviously, you, you're well-versed in all this anyway but what are you thinking when like you're hearing these stories for the first time like john like what john's just described in their work that they've done and and you obviously subsequently been involved with
2: oh i'm not made of the same stuff as john and Jill are very few people are so at this end when i started to read and quite get obsessive about reading about the dog meat trade it's very very dark very dark period in my life Mm -hmm. Because you can't get it out of your brain, and you're not even there and actually doing anything about it. So mm. you know, this is this is the sort of stuff that this couple and those around them that at that time helping them are made of, and it's quite unique. Because yeah, I yeah. I don't know I don't how know how you physically do all that, because yeah. you know they're seeing it with their own eyes, and, and I'm seeing yeah. it through them, but. I'm not actually there, you know, and the same with yeah. Tsunami, isn't it, you know, everything that's on set there, whether, you know, neither of them would would acknowledge the fact that they're, they're anything but a normal couple, but they are actually quite unique people who, um, who are made of tough stuff, but you wouldn't know it because they're so um, kind and empathetic and, you know, but there's something yeah. very, very strong in there—a uh, strong will that if they see something, they're going to do. They're going to do something about it, not just sit in their armchair, flicking through Facebook and, and and making comments. They're actually going to physically make it their life's work to to do something. It's amazing.
0: How do you how do you think Donna like Soy Dog is so good at getting the, the message out and and getting people involved? um spreading the word how, how how do you think they're good at that
2: i think leonard's involvement in social media definitely uh, because we wouldn't we wouldn't know about them without his expertise and and the fact that it's john and jill and they are um they're not just names they're people that other people have been able to meet they've met them in thailand they've met them in the uk um so they're real people it's not just these two names John and Jill Dally, they've been hands-on from the beginning and still hands-on to the very, very end. So it's it's that, you know, there's not this board right up there called John and Jill Dally. There never was. They were sort of right down there. You know, neither of them ever been paid. They've never taken a penny from the foundation, which is another biggie for for people like me, people like you. You know, when you realise that those people have never even taken a penny out of this. Yeah. That's what makes it really special because, yeah. you know,
0: it's, that's quite unique, isn't it? Uh, and and also, I think there's a legacy there now with Jill not, uh, sadly not being with us anymore. And I, I, I wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that. Um, if it's okay with you, I, I know it's a really tough subject. Freakishly, I was at, I was at her funeral. I don't know how on earth I, I, I booked my trip six months in advance and I was just happened to be there it was extraordinary and I
2: that's how blurred blurred a day it was because I don't even remember seeing
0: you there that's weird god that's mad sorry that's mad because yeah no I I just remember taking a picture of John coming down the um the steps of um the temple with um cola yeah that was a that was a a hell of a day but um because Jill obviously sadly passed away with cancer but um how long was that process? How long was she ill for and and um, was she really, really fighting it, John?
1: Very short time because she'd not been well because <coughs> it was a bit of a weird year because I'd gone to the UK for surgery for my cancer and she hadn't been well for a time. There'd been something niggling her, you know, she hadn't been feeling good. When we got back, there were a couple of things that happened in... Firstly, on one occasion, she'd been cutting my hair, just sat outside there. And all of a sudden she sort of said, Oh, I have to stop a minute," And then she started talking gobbledygook. And I said, what, Jill? And then she said, Oh, I'll sit down. So she went to the, I sat down and she came back and said, Oh, right. Now I no, I said, sit down. And she wouldn't go to the hospital. She would never go to the hospital unless she actually was forced. That was the first incident. A bit later on night, she was in horrendous pain in the shoulder. Horrendous pain, and she couldn't even you couldn't even touch it. So I took her down to the hospital, and the doctor there couldn't touch her, whatever. But he gave her some strong pain relief morphine-based. It went, and uh, that was that. And this had all been sort of November, probably 2016, and then. She went to see a doctor to and get to the bottom of things. And this doctor in December saw her in December. Uh, saw her again in January. I actually, you know, I was withering. I said, well, "You know, what is it? Why do you think she's feeling so ill?" And she said, "Don't know." She said, "There's nothing we can find. Absolutely nothing wrong with her. She's, bloods are okay. I've got my, her X-ray here. That's clear. Everything looks fine." So and she said to her, you're going to be living for many years, you don't have to worry about everything. You're you you know, you're okay. You just and it was a and I said, Well, look, can't we, you know, try and get to the bottom of it? I said, What about a scan? She said, Not necessary, you don't need a scan. Why would you pay for that? I said, Anyways, that was that. So a couple of weeks after that, she had another of these turns where she was again cutting my hair. And very nice doctor, very thorough doctor to say, looking back for a change. She suspected from the symptoms, Jill may have um, having epilepsy or whatever, or was it? Anyway, she put all these probes on her head and blah, blah, blah. No, it wasn't that. So I'm sending you for a scan, came back and her head was full of tumors, all of brain full of loads of small brain tumors, but they were secondary tumors. And so, and she got a chest, she had the expert in the very same doctor had been a head doctor when she lost her legs all those years ago, still there. didn't look any different. And he's looking at the chest X-rays. Yeah, it's a tumour. And I said, Well, the doctor saw it the same x-ray says so there's nothing wrong with it. And he says, Well, you know, they make excuses. Oh, it's probably something a GP wouldn't see, but he straight away has a bit of, she had lung cancer. And also it also be everywhere else. I think it spread everywhere by that.
0: Can I can I just ask um Donna, you obviously you what was your memory of that time?
2: Um when they when they had the the diagnosis or the, the prognosis that she had little time to live, um, John sent me a message. I can't remember in what form whether it was a text message or whatever, and it was said that this was what it was and this this is how long she's got. And at the end of it, he just put Jill knows everything. Of course, yeah. Why wouldn't she? Because Jill wasn't the sort of person that wouldn't have demanded that she knew everything. So he, he was sort of tipping me off that she knows you don't have to not talk about it with her because she knows. And um, that was probably about uh, sometime in the, in, the, in the night, in the middle of the night and reading that, you don't go to sleep. I, come, I came downstairs and sat with a cup of tea thinking, shit. And I remember sat there cup of tea after cup of tea after cup of tea because you don't know what to do with yourself, do you? Because it's yeah, the, no, of course it's well, shot. Yeah. Two three hours afterwards, I'm still sat there in this stupor, and the, the phone rings, and it's chill. and it's um, it's unbelievable, really, because it's um, right. Um, <laughs> I don't know what he's. I don't know what he's told you. I don't know what what they're all saying. And, and what impression you've been given. But I'm not going anywhere. So uh, I don't want any tears here. Uh, I'm not going anywhere. You know me. You know I've thought bigger things than this. You know I'm not going anywhere because I've got things to do. We've all got things to do. Uh, anyway, how's your back? Well, sort of under up, really. How's your yeah. bloody back? And yeah. unbelievable.
0: Yeah, no, I can I can well imagine she
1: I'm not yeah. sure she accepted that she was that was it. I'm not sure she did, to be honest. I mean, the doctor told us straight, but we didn't talk about it after that. I mean, if she came back from Bangkok, it was all she wanted to do was come home. And this is typical Jill as well. I remember coming home and she was in a back wheelchair at the time. She was in the kitchen and on an, just like she was at Christmas years before. She was in the on her knees on the wheelchair in the kitchen i said what are you doing what do you want and i said um, okay you know i'll make it what do you know i'm just like oh well, the other thing yeah she wanted to go shopping she wanted to go to the shops i said no way i said you can't go to the shops i said what do you want to go to the shops oh, i just want to go out i said i've been stuck in that bloody hospital for two weeks and i want to go out i said well i'm not taking you out it's crazy I said you know well i'll take it myself then i'll get my legs, and i'm going to drive and i said no you're not And I, you know i mean literally i had to put my foot down but she was very stubborn when she wanted to do something that was that she was going to do it but she never but she got well i mean she couldn't get to the bathroom on her own so i mean I, you know i out and got a commode and all this and then i'd get her onto the commode so she was getting in state but she you know she was at home it's where she wanted to be until that morning when she was literally in so much pain we had to get an ambulance to or you know we got an ambulance coming up and then took her in and they gave me the choice basically we can put her in intensive care on a, vet- on a ventilator <coughs> keep her going or we can put her in a normal ward, normal room you know Ward and give her palliative care. They made it quite clear that she was going to die, or whatever. So I made the decision for palliative care not to keep her alive. But it's a horrible decision to have to make. Uh, but just to keep somebody alive. And it was very quick, to be honest, in sort of was it three, four days? She went down. I mean, they were giving her morphine, obviously, in ever increasing doses. And it was I had Miss Saigon playing at the side of her bed and I was there all day and Yao, our maid, would come as well. And then I got a private nurse in. And asked me, I just knew up to one night I rang Yao up and said, Don't bother coming tonight, I said I'm staying. And uh I stayed and that night yeah, she she went. Uh I just suddenly knew she was gonna go that night. Uh so you remember, was it? Can
0: you remember like the last sort of can you remember like the last moment you shared together like a, a like a meaningful moment or is it something really
1: small or in terms of meaningful moment we couldn't communicate anymore at that time she couldn't communicate yeah. get herself speak I mean it's pretty horrible because we had to always literally every 30 minutes 40 minutes I'd be getting a nurse in we'd have to uh, suction out you know fluid out of her lungs which must have been horrible for her you could hated it, but she couldn't breathe without, I was just with her and I knew, and she sort of sat up, she sat upright, put my arms around her and um, she died. That was that. I just held her and uh, stayed there for longer and uh, eventually, yeah, they had to come and uh, yeah, the doctor came, pronounced her dead and they needed to do what they needed to do. And uh, that was it until she came, she looked, she'd made, she'd written on paper. She knew she was going, I mean, she'd written on the back, honestly, know a she'd written on the back, it's in the book as well. Photo of um, what she wanted funeral-wise, but she did not want a body taken to a temple, which is the normal thing here. She wanted it to be taken home, which we did. And I, again, it's a Thai thing. I went with her from the hospital home and Sound crazy. but It's a buddy's thing, all the rest of it. You have to to do with ghosts and things. I think have to talk to her all the way from the hospital to the house, telling her what direction we're going, where we're turning, and every all that carry on. And then put her in the house, and the coffin was here, and the you know later in the coffin. And um, yeah, she was here. What was it three days or so before the actual funeral took place?
0: yeah okay I'd just like to add like thanks for that that was very em- emotional and uh it's really hard to hear actually um but um what was uh sorry I, I sort of like completely lost it basically um I just remember when um I first heard about Jill and it was it was ridiculous because I like I said I I had connection with her and I, I don't think it was a, a profound one like I, we spent i've probably been soy dog maybe 10 weeks over in total but there was something about her that just it was very matriarchal i can't explain it and um when i found out i i was just it really floored me really (laughs) floored me and i think a lot of people around the world felt like that and donna would you be able to like maybe expand on that a bit like why you think Jill was so well loved and why so many people were so devastated. Because she was one of
2: those people and I'm not just saying this because she has gone, but she just had this thing about caring about everybody more than she cared about herself. And and everybody knew that. Everybody that met her knew that. And people who hadn't met her knew that through other people. She just had this I don't know, humbling empathy about her, that, particularly for the underdog, really. And whether it was to detract from her own upbringing, you know, she'd had a tough life, a very tough life, all her, mm-hmm. um, until until she met John and then other bad things happened to her. But, you know, at least she'd met the love of her life and, and had that. But her upbringing was appalling. So, you know, you would think when you've had that sort of upbringing and life has been that tough that you'd be quite hard but it was completely the opposite Mm.
0: she went the other way right she just completely went the other way completely the
2: other way not just for animals you know people people do well
1: betide you well betide you if you you i've seen her with people sorry dog if you were you stepped out of line in the way you treated those animals or whatever. I didn't
2: take any prisoners at all.
1: My God, she, you'd know. I mean, I would never take her to, I would never have taken her to say Hanoi to see actual dogs being sold for meat and butchered and this sort of thing. She would have killed somebody. You know, mm-hmm. she'd have ended up in locked up in prison. There's no way she would have just could have taken that in, you know, and had just done nothing. She would have been grabbing the knife off the butcher and you know letting dogs that should have gone as a my opinion yeah. I just know what she was like there's no way it could have, she would have she would have had to have done something yeah you know, not yeah you know never mind going home and then biting to change it no if she was on the spot there and then she'd have to do something about it absolutely yeah that's without a shadow of a doubt as far as you mentioned the matriarchal figures mentioned of course as far as the shelter staff were concerned there's a lot more now but no matter having it they all thought of as mama joe particularly the burmese you know again this is the underdog thing these are the poor Mm. burmese loved her you know really did and she yeah took care of them sure i mean she's confided in donna a lot in terms of you know, personal demons and things in terms of philemia and all that. I mean, you know, we didn't really talk about it much. Yeah, I knew about it. I knew when she stopped. Probably, again, that's a weakness of my But I didn't like particularly. I knew how embarrassed she would be or how horrified she would be because she ha- she was hiding it.
0: I mean, I I, I I get it because of her past. She was um, she was adopted, right? So like that, I mean, and then she had the problems with reaching out with to her mother again and, and facing
1: further rejection.
2: Yeah, just rejection.
0: An and also her own
1: also adopted mother you know i mean today her, mm. her mother would never have been allowed to adopt a child i don't think. she'd never got through the interview unless she was very clever because she was never a loving mother put it that way and she was always apparently it was the father that couldn't have kids you know he was her mother always blamed and held over her father you know that mm. that she why she couldn't have children you know and um uh, her and her children, and her sister were obviously adopted them. um so there were it was never hidden from them you which know, yeah. shouldn't be but uh,
0: yeah it's it, i mean how like, it, it's an interesting dynamic um that you guys have i think um in terms of you Donna you know you being able to support and listen to her emotionally and and, and John like you know, not in a negative sense, but not not as adapted. And we're all different. You know, we all we're all able to deal with things in different ways. You know, some people are able to like fucking wrap up dead bodies in body bags, and some people aren't able to. You know, talk about feelings or, or what have you so easily. It's it's such a weird way the makeup that we're in. by the way sorry the way we're made up.
1: And Jill and I were very much Jill and I were very much opposites in many respects. Other respects, we were the same. Mm. In effect, we were both one for, I have, since I was a child, for the underdog, you know, in those days, somebody who was being bullied, I would step in. I had this mild sort of compulsive disorder whereby I would pick up bits of paper or stones off the pavement if they're on their own, you know, literally. And I used to get into trouble with that because I'd get home, where have you got the money from for buying sweets? And I have not been buying sweets. The evidence is there, more or less. Didn't realise. I wouldn't. I picked those pieces of paper off the street because in my book they were lonely. My childhood and upbringing was: I built walls, you know, and basically, yeah. boom, mm. no one's getting in, and you don't, you know, if you don't, you don't get hurt. Whereas Jill was very much the opposite. She was out there. She believed in you should show your emotions, you know. If you're, if she was angry, you knew it. If she was sad, you knew it. If she was happy, you knew it. You knew straight away what emotion, you know, what state Jill was in just by looking at her. I've seen a soy dog come and start at me once and literally, she was so angry. She was almost foaming, literally.
0: Just just really briefly, like um, how soy dog with the shutdown, with the lockdown rather, how, how, how are things affecting it? And
1: We've had a major appeal which has been successful, basically a major appeal to the major donors as well on the basis of how it is affecting us. And the main way it's affecting us is, hey, okay, we've had to shut our doors to people, you know, that's because of social distancing and everything else. And of course, nobody can fly into Thailand at the moment, Phuket. Uh, people can't come in to, you know, we're not supposed to allow people to soy a dog anyway. We've got one volunteer who arrived the day of the shutdown and couldn't get out again. So she's still working. Um, but I refuse to shut our doors to, to animals that still need us because we're full to capacity with dogs. And the reality is there's no dogs going out. So we've still got dogs coming in but we can't send them out there's no flight volunteers yeah. there's no international adoptions we've had a few local adoptions the appeal is basically being building more accommodation for dogs it's we built. it's going very well adapted all the existing uh, shop, runs so we could put more dogs in there by putting extra kennels separate kenneling at the back so at night, because we'd be afraid of fights and dogs killing each other, we can put dogs, some of the ones we're worried about away. But that allowed us during the day when staff are there to get more in. We've built new runs, contractors building new runs, and all this has cost money. It's also taken this is down for the future, really. It's taken away a lot of the off lead space. So the off lead space that was opposite the new J runs, remember those, that's gone. That's where the yeah. new runs are. There's nowhere else to put them. Um, so we've increased capacity by just over forty percent. about Now, based on how many dogs go out every month and how many come in, that in effect equates to being able to keep taking dogs in at the current, you know, the normal rates for, for six months. Now, funny enough, the first when we had this big lockdown for two or three weeks, there were less dogs coming in. Our staff were allowed to go out and get them, but people weren't bringing dogs in hardly any cars on those roads so there was no road accidents so the actual intake was down it's now back to normal and it's numbers are record every day is a record number of dobsy so that's what that was the big issue and that's what we've focused on but what we're also looking at doing now is and this will be part of a uk thing we're doing in the uk
2: well we, we're we starting this this thing over the next couple of days called um it's simply called the July dog walking challenge and it's 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 based on the fact that people have been locked down and in isolation and we needed to to find something that could people could do without breaking any rules that would benefit their own mental well-being and and their dog so it's it's a simple thing is that from July the 1st Walking 60 miles in July, which equates to two miles a day, which equates to 40 odd minutes, which is something that we all should do with or without our dogs every day. Um, so that's going to be announced in the next couple of days where we have a Facebook group and you go to that group and you register yourself, um, to take part in the challenge. And you build your own personal fundraiser within within that group. Is the tools to do it, and then you reach out to your friends and family and ask them to sponsor you. And it's all honour based. Um, nobody has to prove what they've done because we assume that your friends and family will say that if you're going to walk forty minutes yeah. a day, you're going to do it. Uh, it's 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 a new way of fundraising to us because we're hoping that because we've made an investment in, in Facebook sponsored advertising, that we reach out to people far further out than this the current, what we call the Soy Dog UK family. So we're hoping to attract new people into the fold. Um, and it's just like-minded people who have got a dog, or even haven't got a dog, you can walk no dog. You can walk yourself or you can walk somebody else's dog. But in, in the large, in, in, in the main, the people that the, the the ads will be geared towards and will pick up on it are people who want to get out in the fresh air, want to do something for charity yeah. and, and have a dog. So it's a pilot scheme for the UK. And then we would hope that if it works, we roll it out. Um, to other countries in the world, probably the U.S. next. Um, We've we've made an investment in in a digital marketing company who specialise in these challenges. Um, They've done a few with Dogs Trust that have worked very, very well. And we're hoping to learn from this um, company, this digital marketing company, so that when we move on, we can learn to do this ourselves without having to invest in it so it's all a big learning curve with the hope of raising a lot of funds and and people new people to the fold
0: it's it's like the the blood of the the whole organization is kind of slowed down because of the flow of it because of this lockdown you know
1: yeah it's huge it's also obvious imagine i mean it's also a loss of I mean obviously we will we've lost donors because people have been out of work and also when people visit us we get a lot of visitors now we've been so highly rated on facebook these are tourists and these people do donate and they do buy merchandise so that's another source of income has gone so it's um you know it's a case of really we do need to try new things to to, to maintain the work we're doing because obviously we want to our aim is to, you know, is to see yeah. a day when there's no more stray dogs in Thailand and elsewhere. I mean, we're continuing with the dog meat trade now in Vietnam. You know, it's not only done it in Thailand, now we have to try and end it everywhere.
0: It's an, it's another challenge. I guess we've got, we've got to try and get Will Young and Gary Newman to walk it their is. dogs and hashtag and at soy dog as, as much as humanly possible.
1: We have no idea when things will return to normal here. The airport is still... Was supposed to open last weekend then the day before they announced no it was not going to reopen it was going to stay closed indefinitely what that means who knows things change um by the day but at the moment we are still locked down i cannot see they've talked about letting tories in from china korea and taiwan where they reckon they've got a good hold of the virus no there'll be nobody coming from the uk who is into Phuket, I don't see for the foreseeable future. I said two or three months ago, I can see it being next year, be things things are back to normal. Hopefully, I'm wrong. I
0: think we'll probably have to end it there, if, if that's, a, a, that's okay with you guys.
3: Twist it, she's over, Twist on me, twist, on them, twist on